Hey, hey, and welcome to episode 54. Thank you for clicking on that little triangle that points to the right for yet another go-around of this podcast as it looks at all things cinematic, past, present, and future. You're appreciated. Whether it's your first time tuning in or your 54th, you're taking the time out of your morning, your afternoon, or evening, as the case may be, to listen. So thank you. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Over the past couple of episodes, we've looked at films that reflected the changing tastes of moviegoers and the changing times, as censorship rules that had dominated Hollywood were breaking down before finally going to hell in a handbasket with the creation of the film rating system in 1968. But we're stepping away from that theme this time around because this year, 2022, brings with it a couple of anniversaries that deserve a mention. 35 years ago, a film about a family with two teenage daughters vacationing in the Catskills, one of them carrying a watermelon but soon getting pulled out of her corner, the other planning to wobble the painful Broadway tune I Feel Pretty from West Side Story in the resort's talent show, the father getting knocked off his pedestal and replaced in the younger daughter's eyes once Patrick Swayze proves that he owns no shirts, and both parents grinning at each other on the ride to the resort like two oblivious soulmates, running hand-in-hand hand barefoot through a meadow sprinkled with early morning dew like an air freshener commercial. This cinematic concoction is called Dirty Dancing, and it became an audience favorite. And then, ten years later, in 1997, a British film about six working-class gentlemen who decide to try to boost their fortunes and maybe the libidos of a few in their own audience by dancing on stage till they're naked as the day they were born wiggled and jiggled its way onto the silver screen. I speak, of course, of The Full Monty. Two films, both with lots of dancing, both with a lot of bump and grind, both nominated for, and in two categories, getting the coveted Academy Award. One from the 80s, one from the 90s. You may wonder why a lot of the films we've been looking at lately over these past handful of episodes are from a different millennium. But before you click on the link to play this episode, see the film titles and holler in agony. Permit me to suggest, helpfully, but helpfully, to heed the words of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. And that said, we'll begin with spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both films, then the spoiler alerts as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for both, then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the trivia segment involving all of you listeners. Join me as we once again rewind to the 20th century, and let's do some screening. First up at bat, Dirty Dancing, directed by Emil Adelino, who would go on to do 1992's Sister Act with Whoopi Goldberg and 1993's The Nutcracker, the one with Macaulay Culkin as The Nutcracker. Dirty Dancing was released nationwide in the U.S. on August 21st, 1987, before reaching areas of Europe, Scandinavia, and Asia throughout the fall and winter. On an estimated budget of $6 million, this thing boogied its way to a cool $214,577,242 globally. If you haven't seen this 80s piece of pop culture iconography, it is a coming-of-age story focusing on 17-year-old Frances Hausman, nicknamed Baby, played by Jennifer Grey, probably most recognizable to teen audiences at the time for being Ferris Bueller's sister Jeannie. She and her sister Lisa, played by Jane Brucker, are traveling to the Catskills for the summer with their parents, played by Kelly Bishop, who'd later star in TV's The Gilmore Girls, and Jerry Orbach, the Tony-winning Broadway star and a regular on TV's Law & Order. He was also the voice of Lumiere in 1991's Beauty and the Beast, which, by the way, you can hear all about if you go back to episode 38 of this podcast. The setting is the summer of 1963, or as Baby puts it in her opening voiceover, the summer before Kennedy was killed. 
Which, by the way, you can hear all about 1991's film JFK if you go back to episode 38 of this podcast. JFK and Beauty and the Beast in the same episode with a connection to Dirty Dancing. Can you beat it? The film opens with sensual slow-motion shots of all these dance couples to Be My Baby by the Ronettes. It's supposed to be, I think, a series of images that foreshadow the kind of immensely erotic body language that you'll be feasting your eyes upon throughout the film's entire running time. Once the credits end, we have exterior shots of the Hausman family car making its way to the Catskills. Baby and Lisa are in the back seat, Lumiere is driving, and Gilmore Girls is on the front passenger side. A radio announcer begins playing the four seasons Big Girls Don't Cry, as Baby begins that voiceover where she reminisces about how this was when everybody still called her Baby and it did not occur to her to mind it. She's going to join the Peace Corps when she's old enough, and it's the last summer where she thought that she'd never meet a man as great as her dad. And as soon as she says that, she leans forward and wordlessly hugs her father from behind while he's driving. Not to be judgmental, but nah nah baby, safety first. Let the driver go, sit back, fasten your seatbelt. And here's where I have a question. This is a honkin' big-ass backseat. I mean, it's not the backseat of a car. It's the Oval Office. I don't know. Were Kai's in 1963 really that roomy in the back? Sister Lisa's practically got a friggin' makeup mirror set up in front of her. There's about four miles of space between each of them and their individual sides of the car, and about six miles between the two of them. I can accept they're not wearing seatbelts, it's 1963, but that condo, they're reclining in, mother of God. They arrive at the fictional Kellerman's Mountain House, where they get settled into some of the organized activities that it offers, such as a group of seniors, with their summer shorts pulled up to their nipples and black socks pulled up to their waists, dancing first merengue style and then a conga line. The Hausman Fab Four join these folks, and then the fun really begins. Baby gets to help one of the young staff members bring some watermelon at night to one of the cottages at the staff quarters on the resort. And that's where Baby meets the resort's dance instructor, Johnny Castle, played by Patrick Swayze. He's dirty dancing with another staff member, and Baby doesn't exactly have Lady Gaga's poker face as she looks at him with hungry eyes and salivating chops. She tries to hide it, of course, as she's still sweet and clean and probably put her teething ring back in the box before her nap. The staff member she was helping starts talking with Johnny. Johnny and Baby are introduced, and her flustered greeting is the famous line, I carried a watermelon. Smooth as asphalt, Baby. But Johnny's dance partner, as it turns out, finds out that she's unexpectedly pregnant. Baby becomes involved in the situation, and gets money from her father, Lumiere, under false pretenses to pay for the abortion. With Johnny now in need of a new dance partner, Baby steps up to the floor. They begin training, they begin swaying, they begin gyrating. In short, they get dirty. They fall in love, things get sexy for a while, until Johnny's first dance partner experiences potentially life-threatening physical after-effects from the abortion that's gone horribly wrong. Once that happens, Baby runs to get Lumiere, who's a doctor, who's able to save her life, but from there, things go south between the two of them. There's another plot twist, and then another, but we'll stop there for the plot setup. As far as what you may be interested to hear about is the writer and co-producer, Eleanor Borgstein. She very loosely based her script on her own experiences. In real life, she was called Baby until she was 19. She went to dirty dancing contests in junior high and high school. She even vacationed with her family in the Catskills. And when she was pulling together her ideas, step one, before she even had a story in mind, she went to her 33 and 45 records to put together an ideal soundtrack for a movie and then wrote the story against it. She divided the music into what she called Clean Teen and Dirty Dancing music to arrange them so that the soundtrack would reflect Baby's journey from Daddy's Girl to a young woman a bit more seasoned at summer's end than she was at the beginning. Remember that the Four Seasons plays at the beginning when we first see the family. Borgstein sent the cassette soundtrack along with her script around and faced a slew of rejections before finally getting a bite from a studio. 
Overall, it took about 10 years to get the film made. And on the DVD commentary, she told a pretty cool story about finding the director, Emil Adelino. He had already won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature for 1983's He Makes Me Feel Like Dancing, which Borgstein called wonderful. When he heard about Dirty Dancing, he was on jury duty and sequestered, and so he begged her, please don't choose anybody else until I can talk to you. She waited for his availability and said that she has no regrets about it, that Adelino was exactly right because he was a brilliant director of dance and a wonderful man. She loves that word wonderful, huh? But the studio was not sold on him because of his ballet background. They wanted the film to have more of an edge to it. So when he was scheduled to have a breakfast meeting with the powers that be as sort of a job interview, she gave him some advice. She said that she gave him instructions, quote, to order something that crackles like bacon so they'll know you have an edge, end quote. After the breakfast interview, he called Borgstein to tell her how it went. He said that they had no bacon, so he ordered granola, and it made a lot of noise. Whether that was the deciding factor in his getting the gig, I mean, who the hell knows. But we do know this. There was a 2004 sequel, or rather a 2004 prequel. I have not seen it. I probably will not see it. (laughs) It's called Dirty Dancing Havana Nights, and it's set in 1958 at the onset of the Fidel Castro-led revolution in Cuba, five years before the events of the first film. And Patrick Swayze has a cameo as a dance class instructor. The leading actor here is Diego Luna from E2 Mama Tambien, and Rogue One, a Star Wars story, as Cassian Andor. And in 2017, there was a television movie remake of the 1987 original, this time with Academy Award nominee Abigail Breslin in the role of Baby, and you can hear more about her in episode 43, where one of the two covered films there is 2006's Little Miss Sunshine, which got her that Oscar when she was still in the single digits. An unknown actor played the role of Johnny in this one, but Sarah Highland of the TV comedy Modern Family is the sister Lisa. And finally, Jennifer Grey, the original baby, has confirmed that yes, there is a new sequel in the works and that she is coming back as the same character. Now, with Patrick Swayze deceased, it's not clear yet who'll be the leading man, so this could either be really interesting or really meh. You decide. But let's now pivot towards today's other film, the 1997 comedy The Full Monty. The Full Monty is a good-natured comedy about a group of working-class men in Sheffield, England. They're gainfully unemployed and getting desperate. They all have their own storylines, though the focus is mostly on two good friends and former co-workers, Gary, or Gaz, and Dave. Directed by Peter Catania and written by Simon Beaufoy, who'd win an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for 2008's Best Picture when a Slumdog Millionaire, The Full Monty was released in the UK and Ireland on August 29th, 1997, before reaching the US on September 19th, in areas of South America, Australia, New Zealand, France, Germany, and Iceland throughout October. On a budget of $3.5 this one became the little indie that could, with a worldwide gross of well over $257 If that weren't enough, it was nominated for four Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director for Catania, both of those went to Titanic. Best Original Screenplay for Beaufoy, which went to Matt Damon and Ben Affleck for Goodwill Hunting, and it won Best Musical or Comedy Score for Anne Dudley. After the Fox Searchlight logo blares its title tune, we first see at the bottom right hand of the blacked-out screen six small figures. You feel like you're looking at those little stick figure graphics that they put on public men's room doors to differentiate from the ladies' loo. They appear with the film's title to the left of them. Cut to the intro music of a telecast. 
There's a whole montage of different pieces of footage of life in Sheffield, England, as an announcer booms out. Welcome to Sheffield, the leading hat of Britain's industrial north. The jewel in Yorkshire's crown is home to over half a million people, and thousands more flock here daily to shop and to work. All this is built on Sheffield's primary industry, steel. The city's rolling mills, forges, and workshops employ some 90,000 men and state-of-the-art machinery to make the world's finest steel from high tensile girders to the stainless cutlery that ends up on your dining table. But it's not all hard work for the people of Steel City. They can spend the day lounging by the pool, watching one of our top soccer teams, or browsing in the shops. But when the sun goes down, the fun really starts in the city's numerous nightclubs and discotheques. Yes, Yorkshire folk know how to have a good time. And it's good times for the city's housing, too. Sheffield leads the way in town planning. Victorian slums have been cleared to make way for the homes of the future. Thanks to Steel, Sheffield really is a city on the move. The footage ends, the music ends, and a title card fades in to say 25 years later. So, doing the math, that newsreel was circa the early 1970s. The first scene takes place in a steel mill. It's run down and looks old and abandoned, obsolete. Dave, played by Mark Addy, says to his friend Gary, or Gaz, played by Robert Carlyle, Gaz, who's gonna buy a rusty girder? Looks like Gaz's plan is to steal the girder, sell it. He has his young son Nathan with him. Gaz and his wife aren't together anymore, and it's Gaz's time with their son. But who's doing the lifting and carrying of the girder? Poor Dave. Gaz laments, Ten years we worked in here, and now look. Before they can make off with their loot, though, the security guard comes along and without noticing them, shuts and locks the door. So they manage to get out, presumably by a window or some other entrance. I don't know, it's not really made clear. They're on top of a sinking car that's in the middle of this body of water between buildings, and they place the girder across as sort of a bridge. Nathan walks across at first to dry land, but when he goes to adjust it for Gaz and Dave, it slips out of his hands and sinks. Gaz snaps at him, Nathan walks off in a huff, and Gaz and Dave have to jump in the water to get across. The three of them walk through the streets of Sheffield past a club where there's a long line of women stretching outside waiting to get into a show with Chippendale dancers. Nathan lets it out that his mother was going on about them, which annoys Gaz to no end. He looks at a poster of the cheeky Chippendales and mocks them, asking what woman would want to see them. Dave petulantly says his wife Jean would. Gaz just looks at him and mocks him for being emasculated. He says, I've seen you vacuuming through the window, I let it go. But you're now just going to stand there while he's waving his tackle at your missus. He tells Dave to go in and get his wife. Little Nathan says, he can't, it's women only. So cut to the three of them sneaking in through the window of the men's restroom. No, Nathan and Gaz, that is, Dave can't fit through the window. Then, in a father-of-the-year moment, Gaz sends Nathan into the main area in the middle of the striptease to find Jean and tell her that Dave wants a word with her. Nathan reluctantly obeys his father, snags a sip of someone's leftover beer along the way, which Gaz ignores, but Jean and two other women get up and make their way to the restroom, which sends Gaz into one of the stalls so they won't see him. The three women are laughing, saying that they won't wait long in a line for the ladies' room, and they've always wanted a nosy in the men's toilet. But then they get serious as Jean confides to her two friends that her husband Dave has given up on her. He's given up on her, on work, on everything. Now Gaz is in the stall, so he's hearing all of this, of course, and he's troubled by it. But when they leave the restroom, and he finally gets to reconnect with Dave, who's still stuck in the window, he lies to Dave and says that the women were nobody that they knew. He then goes out to grab Nathan, who's still down in the brew. The next morning, Gaz walks a hungover Nathan to school. 
It's clear that Nathan is tired of his father's antics, complaining that other dads don't have their sons do the crazy shit the guys as Nathan do. Gaz tries to make good, offers to have his place cleaned up for the next visit. He even offers to bring Nathan down to watch a local soccer game at the park the next weekend. Nathan asks about going to a pro game instead, but Gaz says he can't afford it, so he offers to find a way for the two of them to sneak in. Nathan walks off into the school in exasperation. Then Gaz and Dave are at a job fair, or a job club as I guess it's called, at least in the Yorkshire region. They're at a table with a couple of other guys smoking, playing cards, and instead of filling out their applications, they're exchanging lamentations about how they're washed up, extinct, all bitter. Meanwhile, off to the side, at a computer, is a man named Gerald, who turns to them and tells them to be quiet. Some of us are trying to get a job here. And he adds that no smoking is allowed. Dave, who's smoking, turns to him scornfully and sneers at him. Gerald, you're not our foreman anymore. You're just like the rest of us. Scrap. Ouch! Conversation turns back to the male strippers, and Gaz goes on about how it was degrading and how pathetic that the women there each spent ten quid to get in. But then, they remember how crowded it was. Must have been a thousand women there, they figure. They do the math, and figure that those dancers must have earned ten thousand quid. The wheels begin to turn, as Gaz wonders, huh, can we go down the same road? Gerald can't help but insert himself into their conversation, saying an audience would need microscopes to see them. And he's not referring to height, at least not from head to toe. Dave says, I don't see why the chuff not, Gerald. And Gerald says, because you're fat, he's thin, and you're both fucking ugly. Ooh, savage. Mayhem erupts. And then a new development. Gaz gets notice that his ex-wife Mandy is seeking sole custody of Nathan. He's been behind on alimony, 700 quid. And he protests, I'm on the dole, in case you hadn't noticed. On the dole, I guess, refers to what Americans might call a paltry unemployment check. She and her living lover Barry are ready to go to court if they have to. So Gaz is all worked up in a lather. In desperation, he tries to convince Dave to earn some cash with him by stripping, but Dave is refusing. And in a sad moment that can easily get buried underneath the comedy, Gaz goes, But Dave, he's my kid. They're jogging, and they jog past a guy named Lampa, played by Steve Huyson, who's sitting in his car, and Dave recognizes him as someone that he would see at work before they all lost their jobs. Naturally assuming that Lampa's having car trouble, Dave fixes a couple of things in the engine, gets the car going, the exhaust begins piping into the front seat, and Lampa rolls up his window. Dave obliviously heads off, but then realizes what Lampa's trying to do to himself, runs back over, and pulls him out of the car. After they talk for a while, Gaz considers having Lampa join them in the strip act he's cooking up. Later on, they spot Gerald at a dance class with his wife, who's unaware that Gerald has been out of work for months. Gaz and Dave and Lampa want Gerald to help them with learning how to dance, but he refuses, insults them, and stomps off. Offended and angry, they then sabotage his job interview. He understandably flips out on them, and they extend the olive branch by offering him the chance to join them in stripping off. So let that be a lesson to everybody out there. Next time you do something really mean to somebody, all you gotta do is just turn to them and say, Hey, wanna join me in a striptease? Good money. Then comes one of my favorite scenes. They hold auditions for additional down-on-their-luck men to join them. And we have great characters here. We meet Horse, played by Paul Barber of the British comedy series Only Fools and Horses, and Guy, played by Hugo Spear, who's determined to pull off what Donald O'Connor does in Singing in the Rain, which is run up a wall, do a flip, and land on his feet. So now the patty of six is fully formed, and I won't reveal from this well-written scene any of the great comic bits and poignant bits as well. I first saw the full money in the theaters back in early 98 when it was released here in the States, 
I can remember laughing a lot at the psych gags and the one-liners, but I do have to admit that I didn't, well, I still don't know anything about the history of the steel industry in Sheffield or the hows and whys of its demise. And most of the northern British slang expressions I was unfamiliar with at the time. I mean, I got the gist of it. Obviously, these were guys who lost their jobs. They were struggling to stay afloat, maintain some form of dignity and self-respect. I mean, that's pretty universal stuff. And I loved the character, Dave. And I loved how Gaz loves his son, Nathan, but just couldn't seem to get out of his own way. So I got the story at the time and the broad sweeping strokes, but the details of the social and cultural backdrop, that was all unknown territory. 25 years later, I'm re-watching this, though, at a hell of a different point in my life. You know, I've been married for a while, I got two kids, I'm in the latter half of my career, dear God. I just get it a lot more clearly, the desperate determination that these six guys are going through. Their wives, their exes, their kids, the need to matter, to rise above the feeling of being nothing more than scrap. Yeah, I can say that I saw a lot more clearly what was going on with these characters underneath the jokes on the surface. And a piece of friendly advice. Depending on your ability to distinguish different dialects, you may find turning on the subtitles helpful. Fuck knows I did. In the final analysis, I really cannot recommend the full money enough. Social and cultural and linguistic unfamiliarity be damned. This is one of the most enjoyable and relatable comedies I have seen in a long time. It's a comedy with a lot of soul. And it's got one hell of a memorable freeze-frame closing shot. So what do you think? Time now to move into the the behind-the-scenes fun facts. But before we do, as I say every time, please proceed with the knowledge that there could very well be some spoilers and references to the endings and other revealing tidbits of information. But nobody keeps spoilers in the corner, so out they come. And spoiler alert, now. So, what does a story about a bunch of grinding vacationers and the cat skills have to offer in the way of fun facts? Number five. Casting could have beens. Winona Ryder, Sharon Stone, and Sarah Jessica Parker were all up for the role of baby. But according to producer Linda Gottlieb, Jennifer Grey's father brought her into the audition, and as she entered the room, she looked back at him and said, Wish me luck, Daddy. And baby was born. As for the role of Johnny Castle... Try imagining Benicio Del Toro or Val Kilmer fox-trotting on a log above a ravine. If that's not possible to conjure up in your mind, then here's another candidate. Billy Zane. That's right, Kate Winslet's big bastard of a fiancé in Titanic. In the Dirty Dancing episode of the Netflix series Movies That Made Us, screenwriter Eleanor Bergstein said that he, quote, danced like someone who looked like he had learned to dance beautifully for his bat mitzvah, end quote. In the end, Billy Zane's audition went down with the Titanic, of course, and 34-year-old Patrick Swayze became Johnny to 26-year-old Jennifer Grey's baby. Number four. The movie was filmed during the month of October. Apparently, the day that they were all set to shoot the scene in the lake where baby and Johnny were practicing the iconic lift, the water only reached a balmy 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So any hopes of getting any close-up shots of their faces were as hopeless as Billy Zane's dancing audition. The water was so cold, the actors' mouths were blue. Number three. Jennifer Grey now has a new memoir out called Out of the Corner. In a recent appearance on the Drew Barrymore show to promote her book, she said that she was so scared of doing the airlift with Patrick Swayze that she refused to do it until the day that it was shot. She admitted, quote, I feel like it must have been making the producers and Patrick and the director, everyone, insane, because I refused. I was too scared. I refused and I basically just couldn't do it. I couldn't make myself until the day when all the people were watching and then I had to do it. End quote. 
She ended up practicing the lift twice and finally did it once. And during the montage of their rehearsing set to the song Hungry Eyes, they bonked their craniums against each other at one point. That was a real accidental head bonk. And Peter C. Frank, the editor, left it in. And I say, go Pete. Number two. Okay, I have zero memory of this, but there was a TV series of the same name that took place after the events of the film. Johnny was played by TV and stage actor Patrick Cassidy, the son of Shirley Jones, who was in the film version of The Music Man, and she was the mother in The Patridge Family. He's also the younger half-brother of David Cassidy of The Patridge Family. As for the show itself, CBS even used I've Had the Time of My Life for the opening credits. It debuted in the fall of 88 and lasted a whopping 11 episodes before getting canned like a tuna. You can find the opening credits on YouTube, as well as my socials where I posted it before this recording. And number one. Bill Medley and Jennifer Warren sang the vocals to the Oscar-winning song, I've Had the Time of My Life. Medley admits that when the music supervisor was putting the music together, he called Medley and said, Hey, I'd like you to sing one of the songs we have for the movie. I said, what's the movie? He said, Dirty Dancing. I said, sounds like a bad porno movie. Who's in it? He said, Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. And that was before they had their success. I said, who are they? End quote. Bill Medley and his wife were expecting a baby at the time, and he didn't want to get involved in the production, didn't want to have to travel away from her for promotion, so he turned it down for three months. After the baby came, the job was still open, and the music supervisor was still on him, so he grabbed the chance. And that song soared to the top of the music charts. And it appears in the film at the end when baby's sister Lisa and her Congo line friends from the beginning are singing some cringy farewell song on stage in the talent show before Johnny and his fellow denizens of the dirty dancing of the deep swoop in, declare that baby belongs in no corners, storm the stage, swipe the performers off the stage with one swift stroke, and bust a conk giving the audience the energy that'll give them what they really want. As for the full Monty... Get a load of this hot stuff. Number five. One of the film's working titles was Eggs, Beans, and Chippendales. Other ideas that were thrown into the ether along with the steelworkers' skivvies were No Man's Land, Fish and Chippendales, and Six Ugly Pigs. Um, no. Number four. Yes, yes, and yes. All six leading actors really did go the full Monty when shooting the climactic scene. And this was in front of a 400-some-odd crowd of extras at Sheffield's Shia Green Working Men's Club. In order to work up the gumption to go au naturel, the six guys listened intently as the director laid out a couple of things. The promise that it would be done only in one take, and a little liquid courage in the form of whiskey. The director told the Chicago Tribune, quote, We took two days to do the final scene with 50 extras. We rehearsed and rehearsed the last shot, but there was only one take. The cast agreed on that. End quote. Number three. According to the BBC Online Network, on Friday, November 13th, 1998, the day before his 50th birthday, the UK's very own Prince Charles attended a Fulmani party at the Langsett Foundation in Sheffield, which is a showcase for the work of the Prince's Trust. In attendance was Hugo Spear, who plays Guy in the film. Together, the two of them reenacted the memorable hot stuff dance from the film at the point in the story when they all told Gaz absolutely no to go in the full Monty. Prince Charles said, quote, I've even been given a bit of choreography on how to do things in the queue. I liked the film so much I've seen it twice, end quote. And Hugo Spear added, quote, he's a natural. He asked me for a few tips but didn't need them. It looks like he's been practicing in his bedroom, end quote. 
As an American, I mean no offense, but to be candid, I'd rather not know what Charles does in his bedroom when Hot Stuff is playing. Number two. Paul Baba, who plays Horse, co-starred, as I mentioned, in a classic British comedy series called Only Fools and Horses, one of the most popular series in British history. According to the UK publication The Mirror, one of the two leading stars of that sitcom, Nicholas Lindhurst, who played the rather simple-minded Rodney Trotter in the show, was offered a role in The Full Monty. He said, quote, I was in rehearsal in Northampton on a bleak day and my agent phoned. Darling, availability check. British film, not much money, set in Sheffield about male strippers. I said I'd pass. I don't regret it. End quote. And number one. Leading man Robert Carlyle, who at the time was hot off a starring role in the Danny Boyle film Train Spotting, does not have good things to say about making this movie. In 2017, the film's 20th anniversary, he went on with some of the Full Monty cast, the Graham Norton show on the BBC, and said, quote, I thought it was a load of fucking pish, end quote. Needless to say, he was shocked when it went on to make more than $250 million worldwide. Not bad for an independent film that was made in a $3.5 million budget, and the Fox Searchlight had so little faith in that they were going to release it straight to video with no theatrical run. And it went on to become a global smash, a Broadway musical, and a four-time Academy Award nominee. And with that, it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. So the poll question for this episode, number 54, was Which of today's two films do you think has the better soundtrack to kick up your heels and get down and funky in the dance floor? Donna Summer's Hot Stuff from The Full Monty? Or Time of My Life from Dirty Dancing? Lots of answers on this one, so thank you all from the bottom of my podcasting soul. On my public Facebook group, Silver Screeners, same name as this podcast, it was exciting to see 22 votes. 17 of you went for Dirty Dancing, while 5 of you declared your preference for hot stuff. On Instagram, there was another vote thrown at Dirty Dancing, and on Twitter, 6 votes went to hot stuff, and 2 went for Time of My Life. So that brings the grand total up to 2011 with Dirty Dancing sashaying its way along the victory lap. Again, thanks to everyone who voted. Involvement like this is the name of the game, and keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMendoza1974, or you can email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. And now it's time to head on over to the trivia segment. In each episode, there is a different trivia question that's directly and sometimes indirectly related to the movies or the people in them. You're all invited to take a crack at it at any time. I do want to say that I like to err on the side of caution, so I don't announce both first and last names, in case that makes anyone uncomfortable, so I only announce first name and last initial. But if you tell me otherwise, or if you say it's fine, then full names it is. You get a shout-out as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. And as I say each time, do not worry a thing about timing either. It does not matter what episode you're listening to, however far back or however recent. Answer any trivia question from any episode at any time. You'll get your meme and you'll get a shout out. And if you're a creator, if you write music, say, if you design websites, if you're a podcaster, if you write, if you're a YouTuber, anything at all, I'm always happy to give your stuff a shout out. Just say the word. So last time we took a look at two films both of which explored human sexuality in their own unique and ghastly ways, Bob and Carolyn Ted and Alice, and Connell Knowledge. The question was, 
Natalie Wood, the first film's titular Carol, was a child actress who appears in what 1947 holiday classic with Maureen O'Hara playing her mother and Edmund Gwynn as the one and only Kris Kringle. It was remade in 1994 with Mrs. Doubtfire's youngest daughter in the Natalie Wood role. And the answer is Miracle on 34th Street. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting goes out to movie trivia star Mary C., who keeps setting them up and knocking them down. Thank you, as always, Mary, for the interaction. Another meme gets hurled as well in the direction of Chris from The Movie Psycho, who takes no prisoners when it comes to movie trivia. Look his show up on the socials and you'll see what I mean. And I also need to give a belated shout-out to Mimi M., a new listener who answered a trivia question about Viola Davis from a handful of episodes back. Grateful to have you listening, Mimi, and to everyone listening, hey, what's keeping you? Join the trivia, it's fun. Such as now, with this week's question. Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes sang the Oscar-winning I've Had the Time of My Life for Dirty Dancing. Medley was one half of the singing duo The Righteous Brothers. In the 60s, they scored hits with You've Lost That Love and Feelin', Unchained Melody, and You're My Soul and Inspiration. Which film did Patrick Swayze make with Demi Moore in 1990? three years after Dancing Dirtily with Jennifer Grey, that features the song Unchained Melody in a love scene involving a lot of... clay. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or any comments on anything from today's episode, or any episode that you've listened to at all, hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or email silverscreenispod at gmail.com. But before we close out, I want to give a special shout-out to my friend Anne. Anne, if you're listening, you know where this is going. She sent a hilarious video of the climactic dance sequence in Dirty Dancing, set to the opening theme song of The Muppet Show. I practically fell out of my chair looking at that gem. Two of my favorite things, parody and old-school Muppets. That video is getting reposted. And Anne, I owe you big. Lives are going to be touched by this piece of comedy gold. Thank you. And that brings episode 54 to a rousing finish. I want to say thanks again for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And you'd give me the time of my life if you could just take a second to rate or review this show on Apple, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, whatever platform you're using to listen to these podcasts. It helps a lot in boosting the show's visibility. And a good honest review will help me to know what you're looking for more of in this show, as I'm open to any suggestions for future episodes. So that would be greatly appreciated. You rock. My name is Frank, wishing you good health good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of Dirty Dancing's baby carrying and then dropping in shock a watermelon into a Northern England club in Sheffield where six gentlemen are in the middle of presenting their eager audience with the fruits of their own labor. <laughs>